From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Janara Nirenberg is trying to fill what she sees as a gaping hole in research on women with high sensitivity, ADHD, autism, and other neurodivergences. In her new book, Divergent Mind, she offers ways to make space for and to celebrate neurodiversity. Then, as anger grows over the police killing of Breonna Taylor, we look at why it received little national response when it happened on March 13th, and why black women's experiences of police violence tend to receive less attention. That's all next on Forum. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Janara Nirenberg was shocked to learn just a few years ago that her anxiety could actually be considered autistic and ADHD. She began studying neurodivergent women to better understand why her traits went undiagnosed, the impact this had, and how we can all benefit from identifying and celebrating the unique strengths of a divergent mind, which also happens to be the title of her book, Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You. Nirenberg is a reporter for the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center and founder of the Neurodiversity Project and also founder of the Interracial Project. Janara Nirenberg, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much, Mina. Great to be here with you. Great to talk with you as well. And first, just start us off by telling us what does it mean to be neurodivergent? Sure. Yeah. Neurodivergent is um, a term really that emerged um, under the umbrella of neurodiversity. So neurodiversity is a, a shift away from the pathology paradigm. Um, so moving away from thinking in terms of normal and abnormal. Uh, so neurodivergent is a term that people can use to identify themselves, um, say, if they have a diagnosis or they have a, a deep sense that they're different, but it's just more empowering language. And when did you realize or have that deep sense that you were different? Yeah, well, I think it's it's always been there since I was a kid. Um, and, you know, I talk about that a bit more in the book, Divergent Mind. Um, but, you know, it was never labeled as anything, never really pathologized. I grew up in a really warm, open, accepting family. Um, I grew up in San Francisco. And um, as I got older, you know, sort of taking on the responsibilities of adulthood, you know, having a, a partner and working and, and especially becoming a parent, you know, the amount of um, task switching required, um, just grew and grew. So, uh, this was, yeah, a few years ago, um, I had recently moved back to the U S and I just, I, I had such a hard time reconciling, you know, certain aspects of my background, you know, um, you know, I went to, to Harvard and I reported for CNN, but, you know, it would be so difficult to switch from hyper-focusing on an essay or an article to then, doing the laundry or doing the dishes. And, um, you know, in the meantime, a lot of shame and low self-esteem and depression and anxiety built up. So it was that confusion that propelled me to start looking into this both uh, personally and then professionally as well as, as a journalist. There's this interesting story that you told about when you were growing up, you always memorized people's names very easily. And when you were in college, you were asked by somebody almost like a, a, a test to say, well, who's that person and what's that person's name? And it was then that you started to realize that 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 
trait or desire to really memorize people's names, really know them and remember them was actually somewhat unusual. And that you actually tried not to do that so well as a means of blending in. This process of blending in, I feel like you get to around this around this uh, consequence that you call masking. How much was that a part of your life of trying to figure out ways to blend in uh, with everybody around you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think, you know, again, when I was younger as a child, I think I was often embraced for for being different. And, uh, you know, I went to SOTA, School of the Arts here in San Francisco, and um, I was involved in theater. And so I think difference was largely embraced when I was younger. And I think a lot of this, um, the more challenging aspects started as I got older. And like you said, yes, in college. Um, so, you know, I don't, know how how conscious it was right i think as as we all get older we sort of um read the room better or we take in messages about how we're supposed to interact with one another and i i started to see increasingly that my own inclinations or the things that i wanted to talk about often were very different from those around me um and it just increased more and more as i got older um so yeah, masking or what we call camouflaging. Um, I think for me, it, you know, a few years ago, it just kind of reached a tipping point where I felt like, you know, I know there's a lot of really great things about me. And um, the, the neurodiversity framework was really a way to um, fully claim, you know, more of my gifts and what made me me and what made me unique. And that's when I decided to kind of start um, speaking out and speaking more, more openly about how my mind seemed to work differently from others. Because do you think that masking in part also contributed to anxiety and, and depression? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very isolating, lonely experience to, um, you know, want to be in the world in a certain way, but then to constantly kind of, um, you know, stuff those inclinations or to not, you know, discuss the things that you're really interested in. Um, so, you know, that's, those are stories that I, I tell in the book as well, because there, there are, there are thousands of women walking around, um, really deeply confused and, and have these feelings of, of loneliness and isolation and um, like I said, these layers of, of shame and depression and anxiety uh, can build. And often, you know, researchers, um, therapists, doctors, they might not really probe for those deeper like neurological differences or, or sensory differences. So all they're told is, you know, oh, you have anxiety or, or you have depression. But often there is something else. And once you, once you do figure out those things, it's, it's incredibly empowering. We're talking with Janara Nirenberg. She's author of Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You. And what questions do you have for her about neurological differences? Do you identify as neurodivergent? And what's been your experience? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
Janar, is that partly why you describe women who weren't diagnosed for some time? I mean, you started to realize this on your own at the age of 32, just four years ago or so. I mean, is that why you call them a lost generation? Yes, exactly. So this term, you know, the lost generation of women, um, uh, has been referenced before, you know, it had been popping up in articles when I was starting to do my research, but certainly so, you know, we're, we're seeing this with um, women who are autistic, women who have ADHD and a number of other, um, you know, what we call neurodivergences. Um, be because of these layers of shame and, and depression, um, it's, it's, it's as though, the, you know, the, 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 the people that um, uh, that they want to be, it's hard for for that to to find a place in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Because all they're told is, "Oh, you have anxiety and depression." Um, so, you know, in the book, I chronicle uh, how women have been pathologized throughout history, particularly their experience of sensitivity. Um, how women have been largely left out of uh, of research. You know, there's um, gen gender bias issues and mental health research. And so in the book, I specifically look at um, the trait of high sensitivity, um, mirror touch synesthesia, uh, sensory processing disorder, and then autism and ADHD. And so talk about how some of those present themselves typically so that people can identify and make space for them. And then I'll also ask you to just talk a little bit about some of the, the things that the women accomplished once they did have the space to express who they were fully. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, these five neurodivergences uh, share sensitivity in common, right? So um, high sensitivity is a, is a general umbrella trait, you know, it's a sensitivity to light and sound, um, even like feelings and, and rushing around. Um, SPD, sensory processing disorder, um, is often looked at more for its physical manifestations, like sensitivity to uh, textures, foods, smells, um, and then some issues with balance as well. Um, and then uh, mirror touch synesthesia is this really fascinating trait um, where, that um, is where a person perceives what somebody else is going through as, as, as their own sensation. So, um, you know, seeing somebody scratch their cheek, you know, someone with mirror touch synesthesia will um, often think that they're experiencing that as well. And, you know, so all of these traits are, are really interesting to look at because um, we, we haven't given them enough um, time and energy and, and funding, frankly, within sort of within scientific research. And so I wanted to, to give like more attention from a scientific standpoint about, um, you know, women's very real experiences in the world, you know, a, a lot of intensity. And, um, you know, instead of using terms like hysteria, we need to go much deeper and really look at the scientific um, underpinnings of, of what these experiences are. And when that's been done, um, you have some really lovely stories of how, you know, women with neurological differences, how it's really been a gift for them and what they've been able to contribute. Could you give us a couple of examples? Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I use the example of, of Margot, who, um, you know, she found out she had ADHD uh, when she was 29. She was working for Yahoo. 
And um, it really explained a lot for her. And she, you know, she came out about it and started Yahoo's first uh, neurodiversity employee resources group. And ultimately, you know, stood up in front of 8,000 people and, and, and shared her insights. And then one by one, you know, so many other people at the company started coming out as, you know, having OCD or having ADHD. And so it's, you know, once we open up these conversations, it's so powerful, you know, and, and the idea is to really destigmatize these conversations and um, so that our, our inner lives are, are better understood. And so people feel more comfortable and connected to one another, really leading to, you know, a larger um, societal shift and a narrative shift about how we think about mental difference. And then, um, yeah, there's many other examples uh, in the book. Um, there's a, a woman named Silka who at Adobe and, you know, when she started opening up about her um, her dyslexia and her ADHD, you know, she just felt so much more empowered to embrace her gifts. And, and so did her bosses, really. Um, and there's Sarah Seeger at MIT, who, um, you know, for her, it was more of a realization, um, looking back on her own childhood, you know, at MIT, she actually says she feels really at home and sort of a sense of belonging. And so, finding out that she was on the autism spectrum really just helped her better understand and reframe um, her childhood. So yeah, I mean, there's tons of examples in the book and recommendations sort of for society as we move forward. And you've touched on this a little bit, but why do you think women, adult women haven't been studied? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially with something like autism and ADHD, you know, a lot of the research and focus is is on children. Um, so that was one of the niches of, of this book was fo focusing on adults specifically and then adult women. Um, so, yeah, you know, until the 1990s, you know, most studies relied on, um, you know, sample populations of, of men and boys. So a lot of the um, diagnoses that we've arrived at are, are gender biased in that way. So, you know, that's really not that long ago and it takes time for new studies to take place. And then for those insights to kind of spill over into, you know, popular um, culture and, and perceptions. And so it takes a long time for, for, for stereotypes to, to change and evolve. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, that explains why adult women haven't really been um, acknowledged when, when we talk about these things. Well, let's go to caller Bill in San Rafael. Hi, Bill. Join us. Um, good morning. I'm sort of dumbfounded to hear this uh, program uh, at this moment and thank the author so very, very much for her work. Um, I uh, have a... Bill? Oh, it looks like, Bill, are you there? Well, we'll try to reestablish that connection with Bill. Oh, Bill, I think I hear you. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I think we lost you when you said you so, have a, yes. I, I, I ha we have a, a, a son uh, who is in his, uh, uh, is about 30 and has had a great deal of difficulty launching, um, if you will, becoming fully self-sustaining and independent and um so i i'm i i can't tell you how much i admire um 
you all, you, you being able to, to do this yourself and manage yourself and, and engage. Um, and and the, the, um, when this, when this, when he was young, he was, well, I guess, I'm sorry to take so long. Um, I'm just questioning, he was, he was identified as possibly being on the spectrum. And this was in the early stages of uh, what I'll call a prevalent aut or, uh, Asperger's uh, diagnoses that were happening throughout the 90s, um, but not not really quite there. And I'm just wondering hmm. if you if you um, have looked at the interface between our trauma and and uh, neurodivergence. Bill, thank you for that. Uh Janar, I feel like he's raising a couple of different things. It's interesting to hear him say, like, not quite there. And I think that there is this interesting question around when something does qualify as a true neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you so much for, for calling in and asking this. Um, uh, first, I, I just want to address this question of, of trauma, actually, because it's, um, it's, it's, it's an important question. And even like in the, the industry, it's important for, for clinicians to look at, as well as for the public to know. Um, so, um, you know, human beings come into this world with, you know, differently wired nervous systems. So it's important to acknowledge um, that. And, you know, something like trauma can't um, explain um, everything that a person is going through. And so that's where the, the, um, the, the value of the neurodiversity framework really comes in. And um, in terms of your question, Mina, around, um, you know, this sort of, when does it tip over into this category or that category? And, you know, I always encourage um, people to take a very individualized look at this, right? And it's gonna be different for every family and every person. Um, because you know human beings created these categories, but um, essentially it, it kind of depends. On, you know, one of my interviewees, who's a neurologist at Harvard, he talked about, you know, well the, the utility in diagnosis is really, you know, is the person just different or are they really expressing distress? You know, and that's where a diagnosis can come in um, very handy. And the truth is that a lot of these different neurodivergences have so much in common. There's so much overlap. Um, so in a way, it's it's about identifying which one feels like the best fit, um, and then what what do you do with that information, right? Um, do you need to request accommodations at school? Do you need to request accommodations at work? Um, but it, it's largely, you know, individualized. I would say mm -hmm. for each person. Can I ask you quickly what have what have you done once you made that realization? What if any accommodations have you asked for? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I talk about in the book that I, I did not seek out formal diagnosis um, because, you know, I, I knew the system was gender biased. Um, I work from home. You know, I'm, I'm not a student. And really, the book was my way of uh, wrapping my head around all of this research and coming to my own conclusions about it, because mm -hmm. I would hear story after story of someone you know, like myself, who would dive into these rabbit holes, learning all this research, then they would go see a so-called expert, and they would really have no clue. So that itself can be a form of trauma and is really something that um, the medical system needs to look at. Um, for me, a lot of changes came in uh, just 
you know, asking my own family to kind of better understand who I am and, and what my needs are and, uh, you know, why I can't have certain um, noises in the house or why I need to take breaks so often or, um, you know, how to minimize my migraine and headache triggers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I think communication is really critical, you know, understanding your needs, having them um, understood by others. Um, and, you know, it's also a learning process, like how to gradually open up about these things with, with colleagues and friends. And yes. for me as a journalist and a writer, a lot of my opening up has been through, through my writing, of course. Yes. Well, let me bring Nia from Berkeley and hi, Nia. Hi. Hi, go right ahead. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of speak to, um, my personal experience in being diagnosed with anxiety. ADHD, depression, and synesthesia. Um, so as a person of color, um, the healthcare system is obviously a lot more challenging to tackle. And I was 18 when I had to diagnose myself mm. and I had no help from my family and it was honestly really, really challenging. And so like as a person of color, having these neurological abnormalities and having to speak to that for yourself and advocate has honestly been something so valuable in my life. Nia, thank you for sharing that. And um, I know you can relate to that, Janara Nirenberg. Yes, thank you so much for, for calling in and sharing that. And um, yes, uh, you know, in, in the book, um, you know, and, and also in my own sort of advocacy work, um, there is obviously huge overlap, you know, the intersection of, of of, of neurodiversity and racial diversity. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult for neurodivergent folks um, uh, of any background, of course, and then especially, especially for, for people of color. And, you know, we've seen this a lot on Twitter where, you know, the neurodiversity community is very strong and very vocal about, um, about these different intersections and layers and um, these, you know, multiple layers of, of marginalization. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I really encourage people to, to learn as much as they can and then to, to be vocal and whether you go a formal, um, route or, or not of diagnosis. Yes. The vocal part is interesting. I want to sneak in this one last question from Anita before we have to go. She says that I feel like your guest is describing my 17 year old daughter who skates the edge of the autism spectrum. Her question is once the guest realized her neural differences, did she need medication? Did she continue to do it? Did she change what was going on and the role of therapy? Did you do any of that? Um, I saw an occupational therapist. Um, I did not do medication. I'm very sensitive to medication like many others. Um, but I, I really recommend occupational therapy. Yeah. Well, Janara, really appreciate having you on. And again, want to remind people the book is called Divergent Mind Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You. And thank you so much, Nara. Thank you for having me. Another half hour forum is next. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.